0: Well, we wanted to give you guys a taste today of what they do in Project 215, uh, our, our worship gathering on Sunday nights for that 18 to 35-year-old uh, range. It's kind of <clears throat> a little bit unplugged, a little bit of worship unplugged, and pretty cool vibe. They also spend some time reflecting, and so I think last week they may, maybe even had like 15 minutes set into their uh, program to be able to spend some time reflecting and answering some questions internally. So uh, we just wanted to kind of give you a taste of that today. So glad you guys are here, and I uh, hope uh, today's an awesome day. Listen, uh, you came at an interesting day because we're going to talk about the reality of hell today. So if those of you who came like, wow, I can't wait to be encouraged, man. This is going to be awesome. Uh, but it's so needed today in the church just to, just to, of course, speak the truth about what the Scripture says. And, and that's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through a lot of Scripture text and, uh, and just kind of let the Scripture just teach us about what Jesus said, what the Bible says about the reality of hell. I love this story about the man in Wisconsin who went on a business trip to Florida, and when he arrived, he immediately unplugged his la- or plugged his laptop in, and, and he sent off an email message to, back to his wife, Jennifer Johnson. But in haste, he mistyped the email address by one letter, and instead of sending it to his wife, Jennifer Johnson, he ended up sending it to a lady named Jean Johnson from Duluth, and, and she was the wife of a preacher who just had happened to pass away, and he was buried that very day. The preacher's wife read the email signed simply from her hubby and promptly fainted. It read, arrive safely, but it sure is hot down here. (laughs) Oh, man. Well, today we are talking about hell, and the Bible does talk about the reality of it being a place of uh, of suffering, a place even of fire. And it's a challenging but true topic. And a lot of times when we deal with the reality of death, we try to think through, we try to make light of it. And uh, that's one of the reasons we laugh at tombstones that are funny. This is probably my favorite one William Hahn Jr. High, uh, Jr. Junior high, Jr. Junior, uh, he just simply wrote, I told you I was sick. You know, that was his last quote. And it was, it was true. Well, we all know there's more to life than uh, just what happens between the two dates on a tombstone. There is eternity. In fact, the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, just as man is destined to die once after that, then the judgment. Or Romans 14, 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So today what I'm going to do is do the best job I can to just outline what the scripture says about the reality of hell. And I pray that as we go through this, it will not only motivate you in your own life, to appreciate what Jesus did for you. It'll also kind of create an urgency in you to, to tell other people about the reality of hell and also the reality of heaven. And I want to admit to you today that I do have a limited intellect about this. I mean, I've never been to heaven. I've never been to hell. But the Bible is the most authoritative truth on the source of the, afterli- on the afterlife. And so because of that, we're just going to see what the Scripture says. We're going to start with Matthew 13. Because in it, Jesus tells a story of how the kingdom of heaven is like a huge dragnet dragged through a lake. Every inch of an entire lake gathers up all the fish, and then the fishermen go through and separate the good from the bad fish, which are of no value to them. And Jesus says to his disciples, this is how it's going to be at the end of time. And he asks his disciples, do you understand? Now, while they probably didn't, they, d- they said they did. Yes, we understand. And our job today is to come to an understanding about what hell's like, but I don't want us to come just to a, a, a mental or intellectual understanding. I want us to come to a, a transformational understanding that will make a difference in our day-to-day life. So here's what we want to learn. First of all, we want to see that hell is a literal place. Today, it is popular in churches and in some seminaries to downplay the biblical doctrine of hell. One group believes that hell is simply quick annihilation. Others say that hell is conjured up as some fairy tale in the minds of ministers to simply coerce people into making decisions. Uh, But along the way, we realize that as we have downplayed that, that doctrine and that thought in the scripture, that for a lot of people, hell has lost its terror. But I believe hell is a literal place for a lot of reasons. First of all, I think it's literal because the Bible supports it. In the past decade, surveys have indicated 85% of Americans still believe in heaven. 60%, though, believe in hell. But what really matters is not what statistics say, but what does the Bible say about it. And the Bible doesn't just talk about this once. How many of you know if the Bible just talked about hell one time, we'd still believe it, right? Because the Bible is truth. The Bible talks about hell 54 times. The Bible teaches that hell was a place of punishment that God had prepared for Satan and his angels. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. C.S. Lewis once said, there's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But this doctrine of hell has the full support of Scripture, especially of our Lord's own words. So one of the reasons I believe in this doctrine, this teaching of Scripture, is because the Bible supports it. The other reason is because Jesus himself talks about it. Jesus believed it. I mean, here we have Jesus Christ, our gentle shepherd, talking about hell more than anybody else. Now, he talked about heaven. Did you guys know he talked more about hell than he did about heaven? Many of his parables, especially in the book of Matthew, talk about the reality of an eternal place of punishment. In the parables, he uses word pictures that are often graphic. He describes people who are condemned to hell as weeds taken out of the wheat and burned. The wedding guests who were invited but didn't come and then were shut out of the door. The the bad fish that were caught in the net and thrown into the fire. The goats that were separated from the sheep because they foolishly focused on self rather than service. Jesus talks about and knows about the reality of hell. In Matthew 10 verse 28, Jesus said, Do not be afraid of the one who can kill the body. But cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who could destroy both body and soul in hell. So, what what he's saying is, we need to be aware of this reality. It's a real place. Jesus believed in it. Listen to just a few of his descriptions. These are Jesus' words. He called it a place, a furnace of fire, a place of torments and everlasting punishment, A a place where people pray and ask and scream for mercy. Who wail and weep, a place of outer darkness, a place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. Those aren't the words of some ridiculous eccentric. Those are the words of Jesus of Nazareth. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus teaches over and over and over about the reality of hell. But I also believe in hell because I think justice demands it. I believe hell is a literal place because the Bible teaches it and Jesus teaches it, but also because justice demands it. It just makes logical sense. In 1912, J. Henry Jowett addressed the Yale Convention, and he said that the very term good news implies that there is such a thing as bad news. The very proclamation of salvation presupposes a state of being lost. Hell is the dark background on which the brilliant picture of the gospel is painted. Without the background, you have no picture. Justice means that when there is uh, something that's done evil or wrong, that there's punishment for that. Those of you who are parents, you understand this principle. If you allowed your children to get away with everything and there was no justice, what would you have? You'd have some, some spoiled kids, right? But when you allow there to be punishment and you do that out of discipline, ultimately why? Because you want to restore them. You want to remind them. And so the reality of hell reminds all of us, that we should be aware of this, and it should make a difference in how we live our lives. Any justice system is governed by a punishment for those who break the rules. The Bible says it this way in Galatians 6-7, you reap what you sow, and that's true. And we actually like justice when it's served. I, I like the story about the woman from Czechoslovakia who discovered that her husband that she loved and believed in for years had been cheating on her regularly. Vera Cermak, I think her name was pronounced, of Prague, contemplated murder or suicide. And she was so angry, she chose the latter. She was going to just take her own life. She was so desperate. She blindly leapt out of her third-story window. However, she incurred only minor injuries because she happened to land on her husband on the street below, which (laughs) killed him. (laughs) Don't laugh too loud. Don't laugh too loud. Not, not okay. Not okay. <clears throat> you know, we, we love that, don't we, guys? I mean, that idea of justice being served, she can't even be tried for it, you know? Now, God is just. He is not going to allow sin to go unpunished. He does not lie. He does not set forth a penalty and then not follow through. God will follow through on the punishment. But listen, the whole idea of the gospel is God went to great lengths to take that punishment upon himself so that you wouldn't have to. So I believe hell is a literal place. Secondly, I believe hell is intense suffering. This is what the Bible says. Years ago... uh, Staunch atheist, Madeline Murray O'Hare, spoke on the campus of Drake University. She blasted the Bible and Christ uh, followers and the reality of heaven and hell. She said, who wants to go to a place where all they do is sing hymns and play harps? Speaking for myself, I'd rather go to hell. Well, she must be speaking for herself because I certainly don't want to go there. And the Bible says there is a way that seems right to man, but that way will lead to death. So what is hell like? The Bible describes it as a place of emotional suffering. Hell is a place of separation. In the New Testament, the Greek word for hell was Gehenna. And Gehenna would have been known very well to the people in the first century and also in the Old Testament because it literally, in the Old Testament, it was called the Valley of Hinnom, uh, which is another way to say that word Gehenna. And that valley was the site of child sacrifices by people who wanted to give to the pagan god Molech. And they would sacrifice their children in this place. In fact, you read about it in Jeremiah 32, 35. They built high places for Baal in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to sacrifice their sons and daughters to Molech. Now, could you imagine the emotional pain that must have been there for uh, any family members or others who saw this happen? That was what Gehenna meant. In the New Testament, they left the practice of child sacrifice to a false god and they made it the garbage dump of Jerusalem. It was outside the city and that became their garbage dump. It was sort of like the Rumpke uh, Hill in Coleraine of the first century, except for I'm sure they didn't quite have the machinery and the technology that they, we do today. and They would burn their trash there. And so for the people of the New Testament time, when the word Gehenna was used, it immediately put them into the mindset of burning sulfur, of fire, of isolation and separation. It reminded them of those child sacrifices of the Old Testament. That's why Jesus uses words like this. They will be thrown outside in the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Emotional separation, a feeling of worthlessness. Anybody here ever felt lonely? Ever felt insecure? Ever felt abandoned? My family, uh, growing up, we had um, some, uh, uh, my parents had four children, and uh, when they had four children, apparently it was easy to lose those four children, uh, especially at church. My dad would drive uh, first, he was a preacher of the church, my Mother would often come then following, and somehow they couldn't keep up with the four of us. Often, many times, uh, there would be times where they would get home, turn around, and go, no, where, where is Stephen? You, you get him? No, I didn't get him. You get him? No, I didn't get him. And one of us children would be there at the dark church sitting outside in the curb wondering if our parents were ever going to come back and get us. And uh, suddenly then we would see the lights of a 1976 station wagon with wood paneling on the side, and, uh, and we would be able to feel... Uh, once again at home, there is emotional separation in heaven. If you felt abandoned for a little while, imagine being abandoned forever. There's physical suffering. Jesus gives us some idea of physical pain in Luke 16, where he told that parable of the rich man and Lazarus, and where the man was in Hades and he simply asked, I need to quench my thirst. Could you just provide a drop of water on your tip of your finger? He didn't ask for a cup or a bucket. He just needed even a drop to try to assuage the, the pain. Matthew 13, verse 42, and five other places in Matthew. Hell is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And as strange as it might seem, Jesus speaks of these circumstances in very vivid terms. Matthew verse, chapter 24, verse 51, He will cut them into pieces and assign them a place with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 5, 22 uses the phrases fire of hell. Matthew 18, 9, be thrown into the fire of hell. Hebrews 10.27 calls hell a raging fire. Second, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and the majesty of his power. Matthew 13, Jesus said it this way, As the weeds were pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin. And all who do evil, they will be thrown into the fiery lake, the fiery furnace, where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation says it this way, they will be tormented with burning sulfur. Revelation 20 says, The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, will be tormented day and night. There is emotional pain, and there is also physical suffering. There's also relational suffering, again because he says that we will be separated from God. I mean, imagine the joy and the, the just the blissfulness of being able to be with God for eternity, uh, just to be able to be with the presence of the Almighty God, to be able to, to to enjoy and to talk and to and to share about all of what God has done for you. Write to Him, and. Uh, Imagine being able to spend time with your family uh, who, have, who have gone before you, who have loved the Lord. There is a relational closeness in heaven, but there is a relational separation in hell. Mark Twain once said, I'll take heaven for the climate, but hell for the company. Some people think hell is going to be like an eternal party. Mardi Gras. Just can't wait, you know. All my buddies are going to be there. In fact, we'll even joke about it, you know, right? People go, oh, you know, we're just going to all be in there together. and..." But hell is best described as a place of separation, solitary suffering forever. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father is in heaven. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And in one of the most sobering passages, I think in all the Bible, comes in Luke chapter 13, verse 25, which is on the next slide. It says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. There will be weeping there, gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the the kingdom of God, but you yourself will be thrown out. People will come from the east and the west, north and the south, and will take their places the feast in the kingdom of God. Man, this is a sobering verse, isn't it? It says you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and yet you're not going to be able to be entering in. So we all need to be honest about um, what we're facing when it comes to reality for those who do not know Christ. The welcome sign in hell should read, The Point of No Return. There is no end there. There is no exit in hell. It is an eternal place. Here's here's the last thing. It's eternal. It's not just going to be a momentary slap on the hand for bad behavior. If you do not accept Christ and enter through him, which is the only doorway to heaven, then you'll be condemned forever. If you're a music lover, you may recall the rock group Wham. Uh, They had a song entitled Freedom, and it spoke of how great... Uh, a love for this guy had for his girl, and he'd do anything for her. One of the lyrics says, you could take me to hell and back just as long as we're together. The problem is, there is no hell and back. Our culture buys into the philosophy that this is not an eternal thing. Even if we're punished, it'll be momentary. But the Bible tells us that's not the case. Matthew 25, they'll go away to eternal punishment. The Apostle Paul in 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of God. There is separation for eternity. Eternal suffering. Emotional suffering. Physical suffering. Relational suffering. So I think all of us need to be aware of the reality of hell. But friends, listen. Hell is a personal choice. You have a say in where you're going to spend eternity. Choice, not Chance is going to determine your eternal destiny. Dr. Lewis Evans said, hell is God's final surrender to the will of those who are determined to be without Him. Friends, all of us deserve an eternity away from God. If you have even one sin in your life, one thing you've done, one evil thought, one evil action, we deserve a punishment separated from a holy God. And this should make us appreciate how much God went uh, to, to, to bat for us. Given His own life, Paying the price for our sin on the cross should cause all of us to have this incredible sense of worship and joy. And the fact that God paid the ultimate price for us. And we have to realize hell is a personal choice. Look at Matthew 25 verse 46. I read the first part of it a minute ago, but let me read the second part. It said they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Friends, there's a choice to be made and eternity waits to see which way you go. There is no escaping judgment. All of us will face the judgment seat of God someday. There was an old car repair commercial years ago that said, you can pay me now or you can pay me later. And friends, at some point, we will pay. If you don't accept Christ as your Lord and Savior, as His payment, there is literally going to be hell to pay. There's no escaping judgment. No second chances. At some point, every knee will bow. And you can bow now or you can bow later, but if you bow later, it'll be too late. Friends, this is a reality in the scripture. And we find ourselves today in the middle of an incredible spiritual tug of war. The devil knows that hell has been prepared for him and his angels. He also knows that if you can't get the, the father or the parent, you're going to get the child. And so the devil does everything he can to dissuade to, to get us to, to to be dissuaded from heaven and to to be able to, to, to be drawn into a life of sin. Satan knows he is doomed, so he's gonna to try to get a hold on you. He knows he can do nothing to change his fate, so he's gonna to try to pull you down. And friends, we see this kind of challenge all the time, this struggle between what is right and what is wrong, as the devil tries to draw you and lead you. And I think that one of the ways he does that is to convince you that eternity is forever away, it's no big deal, it's not going to happen anytime soon. Or maybe he'll convince you and say, listen, hell can't be as bad as what they all say. G. Campbell Morgan once said, I believe the promises of God enough to venture into an eternity on them. I believe in the promises of God so much that I'm going to venture into an eternity on them. And friends, if you're a Christian today, this message should be actually encouraging to you. It shouldn't depress you. It should give you this tremendous feeling of relief and grace and appreciation of God. Because you go, God, I, I don't deserve heaven, but you gave that gift to me, and I received that gift. For those who have made Christ the Lord of their life, I wanted to motivate you today to commit yourself to him so much so that you'll never, ever, ever go to a place called hell. I want you to commit your life so much to him that you feel an urgency to tell people around you about what Christ did for you on the cross. Years ago, an evangelist told this old story, and I think it really makes the point, about a young guy who decided he was going to leave the faith of his family and was going to start a saloon in the Old West. And so this was going to be his life's calling he's going to start this saloon and so he invests all of his money and he starts the saloon in that local town but on the day it opened nobody came through the doors and he looked around said where's everybody and he realized he goes outside and there's his dad out there on the deck and he's telling people you don't want to go in there don't go in there and he's dissuading people from going in there and, and his son is so angry with him. He said, Dad, you are ruining my grand opening. And his father replied, Son, I can't let anybody go in there. Alcohol will ruin their lives. It will steal their money, destroy their family. And about that time, another man came up. And his dad told him, You can't go in there. And the son was so mad, he just reared back. And he hit his father. And his father fell to the ground. And His, his father looked up at him and said, Son, you can hit me. You can spit on me. You can even kill me, but the only way anybody's going in there is over my dead body. You know, people ask, would a loving God send somebody to hell? No. You send yourself. At different junctions in your life you have been introduced to Christ and you are given the opportunity to realize that he died on a cross in order that you could be saved from your sin. And Jesus literally hangs on a cross which stands between the entrance to hell and you and he looks at you and says the only way that you are going in there is over my dead body. And so every single person has to look at that gift with appreciation but also has to understand the heinousness and the seriousness of sin. Former preacher from Lexington, Kentucky, Wayne Smith once said, "Satan will tell you there's no no will not tell you there's no hell, and he won't tell you there's no heaven, but he will tell you there's no hurry." And this is one of those teachings where people go, "That's an uncomfortable teaching." But I pray that it makes us realize the reality that there is hurry, that there is an urgency to this. Eternity hangs in the balance, and the world needs to be lovingly led to the foot of the cross, and as terrible as hell is, The person who swallows his pride and places his trust in Christ need not worry, for he will never have to see that place. And so throughout your life, you're given opportunities to both dedicate your life and rededicate your life to Christ. One of those opportunities comes every weekend at communion. It gives us a chance to either dedicate or rededicate our focus and attention on Christ. Same thing when it comes to the end of messages. We don't make a big to-do about it. Um, we don't call it the invitation him like we used to. We just simply say this is a time for you to make a decision. If you want to do that, you can. What I would say is don't let these opportunities pass by. You're only given so many opportunities in your life where you become face-to-face with the reality of what Christ did for you and the reality of the punishment for sin. And you can accept His gracious gift or you can reject Him. It's really up to you. So here's what I want you to do. We're going to spend some time in worship. We've got a few minutes. Spend a little bit of time in worship. I want you to see this as an opportunity to sing and to celebrate. If you're a Christ follower and you are in Christ, I want you to see this as an opportunity to say, thank you, Lord, for what you've done for me because you have done so much in my life. I'm so thankful for that. Would you just worship Him as you hear this song? Or maybe internally you realize, I've kind of veered off the path for a little while and it's time for me to come back. Maybe you see this as an opportunity to rededicate. You may want to make that rededication public after the song is over, you stand up, uh, just come up during the invitation time and talk to me, and then just say, hey, guys, I just want to rededicate my life to Christ. If you want to do it privately, do it at your own seat. Say, I want to rededicate my life to, to what God has in store for me, the best possible life. And if you've never made a, a, a commitment to Christ, the invitation is an open invitation, an opportunity to say, yes, I believe in Jesus. I confess that belief. I repent of my sin." I want to live a life of godly life. I want to start over again. And to say, I want to submit to Christ through being baptized. I want to be buried in the water, raised to walk a new life, and I want to live the way that Christ wants me to live. Eternity in these moments hangs in the balance. So would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for what you've done for us on the cross of Calvary. You gave us your life. And God, I, I pray that Calvary would remind us about the seriousness of sin. And would remind us once again about what it, what it means for us to love you in return for how much you loved us. God, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And God, I pray today that we would be a people of the cross. People who celebrate the greatest gift of all. And a people who live in that reality. And God, today we worship and honor you through this song. in a way to say thank you for giving your, your best for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.